they're developers who like to sit with the designers and the architects and kind of marinate through decision making and and you know review you know different color marbles and just you know really kind of take time to design and and obviously everybody wants to put something forth that they're proud of and that they respect but there's also something that once you sort of get into construction or even get deep into design you have to start being decisive because you know, if you I use the example, if you don't pick the sconce, you know, while you're in the midst of constructions, perhaps you've designed the building and you say, okay, I'm going to have an allowance for this light fixture. But at some point you actually have to pick that fixture. And if you don't pick it, then the roughing doesn't get installed. And if the roughing doesn't get installed, the sheetrock can't get enclosed. And the next thing you know, it becomes a sort of vicious spiral of, you know, delays. And it's exactly sort of what you can't have, especially in sort of New York City construction, where it's so fast paced and so demanding that, you know, if you start to fall behind, you know, you lose everyone's focus and it, it becomes very difficult to kind of restart the engine. So, you know, again, everybody wants to, again, put forth the best design, the most perfect project and plans and specs that they can. But at a certain point, you just have to start deciding and move on and have some conviction in what you've decided. Welcome to a best practice a show where we interview leaders in the building industry to unpack the tools, strategies, and tactics they use to run great organizations. Today, we're excited to be joined by Scott Schnee of SK Development for a fireside chat about how to manage a development pipeline. Father and son team of Abe and Scott Schnee is currently developing over 500 million projects all over New York with additional projects in the Hudson Valley, New York City, Newark, uh, in New Jersey in all in pre-development. Scott has 15 years of experience acquiring sites and developing projects throughout the New York metropolitan area. He has been responsible for nearly 2.5 million square feet of development valued at over $2 billion. And with that, thank you very much for joining us today, Scott. And also as always, Chris, a special thanks to Sarah Lippergolo of Seldorf Architects for connecting us with Scott. So with that, Scott, I'd like to start off just like understand a little bit more of your background and, you know, I mentioned at the very top, like it's a father and son team, you know, maybe you can kind of describe that dynamic and what does that look like? Sure. So thanks everybody for hopping on. I am, I'm fortunate to actually be a third generation developer. My father started working with my grandfather back in the late sixties as a home builder, predominantly in Queens and in Staten Island in around New York. I came to work with my dad in 2006. And I think I was sort of fortunate enough for him to have the experience of being the son of a developer. So he kind of knew how to be the father of a son who wanted to be a developer. And uh, yeah, you know, I went to work in 06, for the most part, just sat and listened for a couple of years. Unfortunately, in, in 08 and 09, I had no choice but to sit and be quiet because there wasn't a whole lot going on. And then in 2010, we started to get really active again as the economy started to improve and slowly my father sort of gave me the ability to sort of expand my wings and start you know taking bite-sized roles and you know bite-sized responsibilities as we went you know and fairly quickly was able to sort of step into a role of almost being a project manager on certain developments where i was sort of day-to-day -day on the construction site and walking the construction site and i think that's probably where i learned the most was literally just every day walking the site we had a couple of partners who were great mentors as well and who were previously in the construction industry and taught me a lot. And um, I think the fact that my father's background was in the construction side, we came at development from more of a construction background as opposed to a finance or legal background. I really probably spent the first four or five years going to not only sort of our owner 
weekly owner meetings with our consultants and the contractor, but I would actually go to the contractor's meeting with his subcontractors. And I think those were the sort of, you know, meetings where you really start to learn the inner workings of how a building gets built, how things can be constructed, what practices are good, what practices are bad, you know, how design works, how design doesn't work, and then also how to be sort of decisive on the development side to make decisions so that the field, the consultants, the architects, the contractors can kind of keep a steady pace. So yeah, in you know, the last four or five years, I've, I've sort of stepped more into a leadership role in the firm. Scott, when did the focus on higher end architecture come into play in the business? You're working with some of the top tier firms in New York and even outside of New York. Where did that start? Did you bring that in or was that actually a, already a part of the, um, the business? Yeah, so interestingly enough, so just to take a step back, early on, my dad was focused more on affordable housing. In the late 90s, he partnered with a cousin of ours who had been actively developing, you know, higher end market rate projects in and around Manhattan. And then truthfully, the first two projects that I was fortunate enough to work on, um, one was a project down in Soho called the Urban Glass House, which was the last building that Philip Johnson designed. And then unfortunately, when he passed away, it was the first project that we did with Annabelle Seldorf, where she stepped in and finished the interiors and the layouts of the, of the building. So, you know, right off the bat, I was thrown into a pretty high level of design and, and you know touch points in terms of interiors. And then the other project that we were working on simultaneously was uh, 40 Ganza Board Street, which is a, an office building, the meatpacking. That was um, one of Morris Ajami's first ground up projects that he did on his own when he left Aldo Rossi's office. So, you know, really right off the bat, we kind of stepped into high design, uh, high touch point type projects, um, both on the residential and commercial side. You know, and then unfortunately, well, let's say unfortunately, prior to sort of 08, 07, 08, we were working on two projects. One was another hospitality project in the meatpacking that was going to be designed by Shigeru Ban. So that was sort of about as high end as you can go. And then we were actually working on a, I'm sorry, two hotels. And then another hotel project in Chelsea that was to have been designed by Raphael Vignoli. So my first four projects sort of out of the gate were all pretty high design, high, high taste level projects. And, and I think that was just, you know, we kind of took that and, and went with it and, and sort of found our niche. How do you come across these architects, like someone like Shiguru Ban? How does someone like Shiguru Ban come in, in front of SK Development? And is it through an RFP process, RFQ? So Shigeru Ban was, in, interesting enough, that the hotelier that we were working with on that project had been meeting with Shigeru about doing a, a Japanese sort of style hotel in New York City. So we actually had a partner that brought him to the table. Vignoli, we actually did do a bit of an RFP process. I remember very well. It was Vignoli, uh, a firm called Asymptote, Morris Ajmi's office. And there was a fourth that I'm now blanking on, unfortunately. So that was more of a uh, a four-firm sort of RFP where they, we almost ran it as like a contest. They each actually came to us with preliminary designs. And we worked with Vignoli and designed a, a whole hotel that unfortunately just kind of got shelved when 2008 rolled around. I wanted to know about when you shifted, your business shifted to this more higher end, the product you're delivering is really high end and you're using these firm partners to deliver it. Like what changed in terms of first, how you built a business model around delivering that product to the market and then how you shifted your execution model so that you would actually be able to deliver at that quality, not only with the architect, but also in the construction process too, as you're overseeing it, ultimately overseeing that as a developer. Yeah. So, you know, I think a little bit actually started before I actually started the business. You know, when you thought of 
high design in the 90s, 80s and 90s, you know, it wasn't really high design. You, you can look around and there's a lot of big old ugly condo buildings from the 80s. You know, obviously everyone hates the term architect, but that concept sort of was invented for better or worse around the same time that I kind of went to work in 05 and 06. You know, we actually have a partner, my partner to this day was the developer of the first two Richard Meyer Towers over on in the West Village. And I think, you know, one of the things that happened was the smaller boutique projects where you can really execute that level of design generally are constructed by non-union contractors. And up until a certain point, there was not the quality level in non-union construction where you could even have executed a project like that. You know, any sort of high design building was a much larger sort of, you know, institutional museum type project that were built by union contractors. And on these small projects, we just couldn't afford it. So, you know, around the same time that the architect concept came into play, the non-union construction execution, you know, improved drastically. And those two things were what gave us the ability to start doing these high-end boutique projects where you could deliver that level of design on a smaller scale and not break the bank while you were doing it. So, you know, it was a little bit of a confluence of two things that came together at the same time. You know, since then, the non-union world has really sort of taken off and the ability to execute on these projects at a cost that's not going to be prohibitive is what allows us to, to do these types of projects. My father was a contractor. So I think just, you know, knowing the ins and outs of construction, as opposed to, again, being, you know, in finance or legal, you know, we can shepherd a project through because we know how it needs to be built and how it needs to be designed so that it can be built effectively. Yeah, we talked a little bit in the green room about this uh, idea of being decisive and how it seems like part of your experience in early on working on site or working in these meetings with, with these contractors and their subs really helped for you to map the entire process in a way that basically made you realize the importance of being decisive at the very beginning of a process or of the design process. Can you unpack that a little bit further about how you view decision-making in the development side and like what are the downstream impacts you've been able to see either financially from being decisive or, you know, maybe kind of walk us through that as we talked in the green room a little bit relative to potentially other designers that might be a bit slower when it comes to that process. Yeah, so, you know, we talked a little bit earlier there's usually, I don't want to say sort of two types of developers, all different types of developers, but there are developers who like to sit with the designers and the architects and kind of marinate through decision-making and, you know, review, you know, different color marbles and just, you know, really kind of take time to design. And obviously everybody wants to put something forth that they're proud of and that they respect, but there's also something that once you sort of get into construction or even get deep into design, you have to start being decisive because, you know, if you I use the example, if you don't pick the sconce, you know, while you're in the midst of constructions, perhaps you've designed the building and you say, okay, I'm going to have an allowance for this light fixture. But at some point you actually have to pick that fixture. And if you don't pick it, then the roughing doesn't get installed. And if the roughing doesn't get installed, the sheetrock can't get enclosed. And the next thing you know, it becomes a sort of vicious spiral of, you know, delays. And it's exactly sort of what you can't have, especially in sort of New York City construction, where it's so fast paced and so demanding that, you know, if you start to fall behind, you know, you lose everyone's focus and it, it becomes very difficult to kind of restart the engine. So, you know, again, everybody wants to, again, put forth the best design, the most perfect project and plans and specs that they can. But at a certain point, you just have to start deciding and move on and have some conviction in what you've decided. 
And then that also sort of falls to the architect and the designers to put forth options that you are happy with and that you can decide from. If they keep putting things forward that you don't appreciate and don't like, then, you know, the working relationship becomes strained. And when the working relationship becomes strained, the, you know, the drawings go out slower and the contractor moves slower. And again, it's one train, you know, and sometimes say that developing, again, specifically in New York City is sometimes like herding cats and you got to just kind of keep everybody going in the same direction. And, you know, if one person starts pulling in the wrong way, it's very hard to keep everybody going, you know, the right way. Do you find, are there any experiences you've had working with architects that you've been like, oh, wow, I really enjoyed the way this architect was able to provide those ops, like in the due diligence process with you, like evaluating what creative direction you want to approach the project in so that those downstream decisions, you know, they just do a really good job of like knowing what you're going to approve in a sense to expedite that decision-making process. Yeah, so we've been fortunate enough to work with architects often on a sort of a repeat basis. You know, I think in general, we try and give the design team as much latitude as possible but you know right off the bat and it may even have to do with sort of the location and the scale of a project sort of to what level you can bring things that goes into just even selecting the architects there's certain architects that are better for certain projects and certain locations than others and if you make those decisions early on you know i think the probably best example is we are as of this week actually broke ground on a new office building that we're doing in a neighborhood called noho with Morris Ajmi's office. And before we even could sign and purchase the property, our partner wanted Morris's design to be approved, meaning the design of the actual facade of the building. And I think because it was now our third or fourth project with Morris, he had a very good idea of sort of what we were looking for. He had done an office building for us recently. He kind of knew what direction the site needed to be worked in. And I mean, it's pretty remarkable. Within 60 days, we essentially designed an entire skin of a building from start to finish. And again, it was something that he came, we probably did eight meetings on the design. Every week, he sort of took steps forward, you know, showed us a few different massings, a few different designs, and it just was a very seamless process. And to the point where we then became almost so far ahead, we had to slow down because we were so far, you know, ahead in the design that we weren't ready to actually start building. So it's a good example in that someone that we worked with that we trusted, you know, if we hadn't been able to come up with that design, we would have been in big trouble, but we relied on him to approach us with, you know, two or three concepts off the bat. We selected one, he kind of kept working through it and massaged it and created a ball of wax. That was, you know, essentially what we're going to be building now. And this was a year and a half, two years ago, just pre COVID. One thing that's firms want to try to do better on purpose is to attract the attention of people like yourself, clients. If you could maybe reflect a little bit on a few of the other service providers, you know, architects, designers that you've worked with, how have you come aware of them and what has sort of triggered you to engage with them like in their own sales process so that maybe they could better understand like where they could work on how they create awareness for themselves or how they can provide more value to you during that sales process? Yeah. So. You know, we kind of come across design firms, you know, in a bunch of different ways. You know, I would say sort of the two or three main ways that we're, we start to interface with different design firms is, is some we just reach out to directly. You know, if we have an interest in working with them and we've seen some buildings we do, we will literally just almost cold call them. That's probably the least amount of, we do that the least amount of times. 
we often, you know, we've been fortunate enough to do a number of projects where we are partnering either with the existing landowners, taking over projects that maybe have had some issues. And oftentimes, whether it's that partner or someone that was previously involved in the project is sort of put in front of us and we create a working relationship that way. We just, a few years ago, we did a project on in Midtown where Cook Fox had already been brought on board by the previous owner. The previous owner wasn't able to sort of get the project financed or, or off the ground. So we came in and bought the project and bought it essentially with Cook Fox attached to it. And it was a fantastic working relationship. They had been, you know, I would say they were sort of 75% of the way through design and were great and sort of integrating some of our thoughts and concepts as we kind of got to the finish line. And then one of the other ways that we've met a number of designers over the years is, you know, we've done a lot of condo projects and oftentimes the sales and marketing firms that we rely on to do the, you know, sales and the marketing, the projects at the back end are very familiar with design firms from all over the world, just because they are, they have their own design people in house as it comes to working with floor plans and different sort of, you know, interior design concepts. And we've been introduced to a number of different firms from that, you know, but from through them as well. So, you know, even back to the beginning, the urban glass house, the building was already approved by landmarks, at least Philip Johnson's exterior design was. So we were sort of inherited Philip Johnson. One of our project partners had designed and done a small townhouse with Annabelle a few years prior, thought there would be a good marriage and, you know, kind of went out that way. Do you ever work with firms that have never done the typology that you're about to embark on? Like where you do know that this is the first time they're doing such an ambitious project? To be honest, no. And I think that goes back to, we kind of have a fairly good feel of what architects work best for certain projects. I think you can get in a little bit of trouble if you're bringing a firm on board who you kind of know right off the bat is not that comfortable in that asset class, you know, whether it be you know, bringing in a real residential developer to try and do an office building or bringing in a really good office designer to try and do a hotel project. You know, I think we try and get out in front of that because I think that sometimes can be a little bit dangerous. We're doing, we're about to start a project that's the rehabilitation of a historic building on the beach in Rockaway. And, you know, right off the bat, we knew we needed an architect that was, had hospitality experience, but also had experience with historic structures, you know, and we were working with a firm, Glinder Bell, who was the architecture renovated Grand Central Station. So, you know, you kind of want to make sure that you have somebody that, you know, knows the asset class and then knows, you know, what you're kind of getting into, both in terms of, you know, scale and scope. And, you know, we try not to cross the streams too much there. Do you ever um, work with any design firms that might, it's like they're showing the promise of potentially entering that. So let's say if it's residential, they might have ambitions to start to do much more large multifamily but their projects are of a certain scale. But, you know, is there anything that you would recommend to a firm like that in terms of working with someone like you? Yeah, so, you know, we're often trying to sort of pair groups up. And I don't know if that's, you know, in New York specifically, there's a lot of groups that are what we call executive architects or architects of record, where they're assigned with doing the real construction drawings and the real heavy lifting and dealing with the building department and making sure that everything is, you know, per code. We've had success in the past of putting together smaller firms, um, whether it be a Seldor for Robert Stern or someone, I don't call them smaller, but design firms that may not want to do those drawings and finding the right architect of record or executive architect to work with them kind of helps supercharge what they're doing and gets them to that scale that you can have them design a much larger project where they're really focused on design. Just did a project in Long Island City in Queens where we actually had a 
the facade was designed by a very small firm in Buenos Aires because the original person who had owned the site, who we came in to sort of, again, somewhat rescue, had been working with them. We actually then partnered them with BBB as well. And BBB did the executive architecture, but then also kind of took over on some of the interiors just because it was a little bit easier. So you have the ability to do that, to try and put a smaller firm with a larger firm to help them kind of step up and scale. But it's it's something you have to you know really work through. It, it's more work for us as a developer when you have a design firm working with an executive architect. You have to make things aren't sure things aren't lost in translation. You have to make sure that submittals from the contractor are being you know responded to by the proper parties. You have to make sure that the design architect is also working well with the MEP engineers to make sure all the coordinations. So it's you know it adds another layer of complexity to a, what's always a, a complex process. What's your thinking on this idea of like a development pipeline? What exactly does that mean in your SK development? So, you know, we've kind of always said that we want to have, you know, anywhere from four to six projects sort of in active construction at one time. But when you're doing that, you also have to sort of understand what's trailing and then what's next and sort of what's in the future. So, you know, if you have four or six projects that are in active construction, then you probably have two or three that are just being finished and at the same time, two or three that are just in the very early stages of design. So, you know, four or five projects really means more like 10 projects where, you know, I can tell you today, we have three projects that are all finishing construction the next 90 to 120 days. We have five or six projects that will all start construction in the next eight to 12 months. And then we're trying to identify the next two or three projects that would start construction in, you know, call it 18 months from now. So you always want to keep that pipeline going, you know, things like recessions and COVID sometimes make that difficult, but on the flip side, sometimes that's what creates the opportunities. So, you know, and then even within that, you know, on the design side, when you're finishing a project, it's one thing, there's a little bit less design, although there's a lot of heavy construction and punch listing and, you know, getting certificates of occupancy and delivering apartments to buyers or renters or office tenants or whoever it may be. You know, once you're in the midst of construction, it's managing the GC and making sure things like submittals and RFIs are happening and that, you know, requisitions and, and all the fun stuff that goes along with lenders is happening. And then, you know, I think the most fun is when you're very early in design on a project and you're really starting to sort of mold a piece of clay and figure out what the programming is and what the best unit sizes are for a location or what the best use is, whether it's an office or an apartment building or a hotel. You know, I think that's probably the most fun part, you know, that those early design days are kind of what get your juices flowing and when you're kind of excited to go to the project meetings. But it's, you know, you want to make sure that all those things are kind of constantly going and that you don't get left with a lull where it's quiet within that pipeline, trying to have a few different asset classes that you're building. You know, if you're just building 10 condo projects at once, you can get caught. You know, we're fortunate enough now that we're, our current pipeline is an office building, a hotel, a rental building, a condo, and a condo. So, you know, we're about to start projects in three different asset classes, four different asset classes which I think is also important, more just sort of in terms of business plan than anything. How does technology play a role in SK development's process, internal processes? You know, there's a lot of conversation about prop tech and growing number of solutions in that space. We're friends with companies like TestFit that, you know, are like doing some amazing work on like the automation of floor layouts yeah. uh, or at least on the feasibility side. Is there a kind of uh, concerted effort about thinking about technology and how it can enable SK development, whether it's in managing pipeline or, you know, streamlining the process in some way? 
So it's interesting. I would say on the development side, in terms of managing a pipeline, it's harder, right? Especially in New York, where there's so many twists and turns and you know, projects are structured with different capitalizations and different timeframes, and it's much harder. I think once you get into deep into design and I don't want to say deep in design, even just into design and construction, we're using it more and more, but we're actually relying probably more on our general contractor or design firm's technology to review drawings. You know, we're designing, I think, probably all of our buildings at this point in Revit. You know, we're our contractor. We use one general contractor on most of our projects, and they're sort of deep into Procore at this point, which does make our lives easier to a certain extent. We know where all the drawings are. We know where all the RFIs are. Um, they have a, another technology called Submittal Exchange, which we can easily see when, you know, an RFI was issued, submitted, returned. You know, when there's change orders, you know, we can click directly to the drawing that they're saying there was a, a change on or whatever it may be. So it's definitely very, very beneficial when we're going through design and actual construction. You know, I think in terms of analyzing deals and working through pipeline on the development side, you know, we haven't sort of found that one that's really, again, it, it would almost have to be sort of tailor-made. I don't think there's an off-the-shelf uh, ability to, to, you know, technologically advance how we review our deals. But once you're kind of in the process and designing and building a project, we're, you know, heavily reliant on technology. Um, we were using a, I'm going to blank on the name now, but we were using another technology for a while where we and the GC and the subs all had an iPad that we could walk around the site on and basically punch list things as we went and it would immediately notify whoever needed to come back and look at something. I'm sorry, I can't remember the name. Maybe Plan Grid or Field Lens? Yeah. No, not Plan Grid. Plan Grid we used as well, but it, it wasn't Plan Grid. But anyway, I think Procar has something similar to that now as well. So that, you know, we do plan on on having it where we all what doesn't, you know, we all have it on our iPads or it can even be on my phone, right? And I walk around and if I see that a you know, an outlet is a skew and a unit that's supposed to be finished. I can click on the floor plan or, you know, we also use a technology that photographs the construction as it goes. So every week they come through and they almost use like a Google, you know, street view type technology. It is incredibly cost effective. And between you and I, it saved us from one, if not two, litigations with potential buyers because they thought that there was a pipe or something behind the wall and we could say no well, here's all the documentation from the day that it was, the superstructure went up to the day that the you know That's stone true. was installed and you can see the entire process and you know so when it comes to design and construction we're sort of deep into it but on, on the development side we've sort of found less uses for it how about in terms of your internal and then your internal team and then you mentioned partners like is the internal team sort of shifting because you have like another investor partner that's paired on projects. And then I'm yeah. also curious about, you know, architect, GC, sales and marketing firm, any other working partners that all come together from your perspective? Sure. So, yeah, so we've done most of our developments in the past decade with development partnerships, right? So we have two other development partners that we do most of our projects with. And I think you'll find that there's a lot of development firms on the entrepreneurial side that partner with other ones along the way. And we often just divvy up roles depending on the project, right? There's some projects where we'll, you know, run the real day-to-day -day development and maybe our other partner will handle more of the back-end accounting and, and financing end of it. There's some projects that are the other way around. You know, we have teams of development associates and project managers, both in-house and then sometimes we third-party them depending on what our bandwidth is at the time that we, you know, we rely on to 
you know, just sort of manage the day-to-day, you know, course of a development and make sure things don't slip through the cracks. And, and, you know, we'll go into project meetings that, you know, in the middle of a project, you can have a project agenda meeting that's three pages long. You know, there's just so much stuff that goes into, you know, a, a mid-scale, you know, high-end condo development in New York City. It's the amount of balls you have to keep in the air is pretty remarkable. Yeah, so we we don't do any of our own construction. We don't do any of our own design. So we are very reliant on third parties. To your point, you know, all the design consultants, architectural, mechanical, you know, MEP guys, our general contractor, again, is someone that we basically use on a repeat basis now and has built essentially all of our projects, except for one, actually. You know, sales and marketing, those are probably the three biggest. You know, you'll bring on some creative branding and marketing firms as you get sort of ready to start sales or launch or leasing or whatever it may be. PR in New York as well, that the number of consultants that you need to get a building design can be upwards of 15 or 20 different consultants when you start including acoustical engineers and lighting consultants and facade engineers and geotechnical and civil. And, you know, it's, you can have a roster of 20 different design consultants just to get a set of drawings completed. You know, depending on the complexity of the project, we sometimes bring on some sort of, you know, neighborhood relations consultants or lobbying firms, whatever you want to call them. So, you know, it's usually a pretty big team of people that, you know, have to get on board and, and again, sort of all be on the same train. You know, in architecture, and I'm curious if how much of this conversation rolls up to you in some way, but there's a lot of conversations around like, how can architecture firms demonstrate their value more? You know, it is a sort of a the kind of external pressures on time, budget and everything else. There's always this kind of sense that like architects are just not able to advocate for that, for the additional value that they're adding. What have you come across in terms of the things that that architects could do or could start doing more of that in your mind would be like, oh yeah, this is a clear way to demonstrate sort of the impact you might have downstream, whether it's like we had a guest, a developer, Bobby uh, Fijan, who's like has a whole database of floor plans and he's like the floor plan expert. And he was talking a lot about how being able to be more an advisor at that level, like an architecture firm being able to advocate for the design at the level of like comps even, where they can kind of provide some more of that you know, speak your language sort of capacity yeah. as opposed to just design. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. So we've sometimes rely on the architects to say, Hey, we did a project similar to this last year. And these, I know were the ones that sold really well. You know, one thing that we're doing a project in uh, New Jersey, one of the projects in New Jersey is the, we're converting a historic office building into rental apartments. And what we're doing there for the first time, and we'll see how it goes is we're doing a design build where we're contracting the architect and the contractor to basically deliver us a, almost a turnkey building. And what we find interesting there is we're relying on the architect to essentially quarterback all the consultants, as opposed to us being the clearinghouse. You know, a lot of what we would do as, or our project managers would do on the development side, we're now relying on, you know, the general contractors, project managers, but even more so the architectural team to quarterback that process. And that also is even more detailed than that. It's a historic building. We're going for historic tax credits. There's a whole, you know, another level of coordination. You know, I don't, it's the first time we've done it. I don't know how well it's going to go. I wouldn't do it except for that. We've, this is the fourth or fifth project we've done with this architect. His name is Ed Rawlings. And again, it's the same general contractor that we've used kind of over and over. So I have a trust level that they're going to do the right thing. But it's also, you know, assuming it goes well, it's going to let me sleep pretty well at night because the concept of change orders goes out the window. There's no one for them to point fingers at except for themselves. 
So, you know, unless I'm drastically changing scope midway along the way, which is not going to happen, they're as integrated into the development team as you possibly can be. So I'll be interested to see how it goes. And I think in general, and we've had it happen a couple of times where, you know, the senior architect or the project architect, you know, again, it, it wouldn't be someone like Moore's Ajme himself, but whoever his senior person is really takes an active role in, you know, reviewing, you know, quality of construction issues and coordination issues and, you know, takes on a little bit probably more of a role than they actually need to or, or scoped to on behalf of the development as a whole, not just me as the developer, but really, you know, babysitting the development to a certain extent. You know, there should be some sort of cross-section between architectural and project management. They're so in the project and they're so, they're probably the most knowledgeable at what's supposed to be getting built. That would be natural for them to be involved sort of day-to-day and in, in babysitting the construction. With your like business sensibility, imagining yourself in the seat of leading an architecture firm, what might you do to like add more value? Like in this example, you're suggesting like absorbing some of the project management scope. Have you thought of other ways that architects could expand or you know rethink their offering to you, whether it be as a partner? That's sometimes where people end up thinking is like the best way to be aligned with value creation is on the developer side. In the case you just explained, like on the PM side, is there another place that you can imagine where architects could be, you know, more savvy as a business person in terms of a a gap in the market? You know, look, I'll be completely honest. We've always been sort of the mind that we hire our third parties and their job is to do their job, right? So, you know, essentially to a certain extent, if I'm hiring you to be the architect, I want you to be the best architect you can be and issue drawings in an efficient manner, you know, respond to RFIs and submittal in, a, in an efficient manner and really work well with a general contractor. There's nothing worse than an architect who creates, and it happens whether it's on purpose or not, there's often a, a sort of contentious relationship between an architect and a contractor. Because the architect always thinks that the contractor is trying to skimp out on their design and the contractor always thinks that the designers, you know, being too persnickety or whatever it is. So, you know, I, I don't know if that answers the question, but I think being, you know, just being efficient and really working well with, you know, the development team and the contracting team is important. You know, I think it was probably a little bit more common in the past where the mechanical and structural consultants would be folded in under the architect's contract. That's kind of gone the other way now. And for the most part, it's not. I think that, and again, I only say it just because we're kind of doing it right now. I'd be interested to see if that's a model that works where, you know, the architect is really responsible for the entire set of plans and that they become the clearinghouse for all of the various consultants. And like I said, you could be talking sometimes 15 to 20 different consultants to get a set of drawings done. But the fact that I have to go hire the civil engineer to deal with the you know, the paving plan, or I'm dealing with, you know, I have to become the clearinghouse for the acoustical guy to review the wall sections that the architect's drawn kind of seems inefficient, right? There's probably much more efficiency if that guy works for the architect and the architect picks up the phone and calls him and says, hey, I need this, as opposed to calling me and saying, hey, we're waiting for so-and-so to send it to me. You know, I think there's, again, maybe kind of continues to fall into that project management role, but, you know, the more turnkey and more valuable you can be to the developer in terms of managing the project and the design process, you know, that's something that I know every developer would appreciate. My time at, uh, spent some time at WeWork and it's interesting how you describe it because that's essentially a lot of what was being done at the time when I was there. It was essentially 
everything rolled up right to the architecture team and the project management team, they were all aligned and working together to deliver projects. And it's almost like a little bit about it being a bit more verticalized, like or, or centralized under one team, but without necessarily, while there's still being a clear disconnect between, it's not like a full design build, but essentially, I mean, one version of this that we've talked about in the past is kind of like integrated project delivery, where at least there's a contractual alignment too between like the architect and the um, contractor, the one entity that can be much more efficient and get to better outcomes because of it. Is that kind of how you're looking at it? Yeah, you know, at that level? Yeah, you know, I think there should be a line between a contractor and the design team, though, more just because, you know, I'm the developer, I hire the architect, the architect designs the drawing and then gives them to the contractor. We have very defined roles. Now, whether all the consultants fall in that silo under the architect is one thing. But for a while in the beginning, when I started getting really active, we actually gave very serious consideration to partnering with the general contractor that we were working on and creating one company. And I am happy that we didn't because I think there's something to be said where you're the contractor, your job is to build the building, you're the designer, your job is to design the building. My job is to be the developer and make sure that, you know, essentially everything's going smoothly. You know, there's been a few development firms in New York where they try to do everything vertically integrated, where they're the developer, architect, and and builder. And I think it's just very hard. You know, it's very hard to have your eye on all those balls. It's expensive to have that level of overhead and have to be managing that many different groups. And you can't be the best at all three of those things. It's impossible. There's just no way you can be the best developer, the best architect, and the best builder. And when you're doing these projects, you really want to have those teams out there that you think are sort of first in class in what they're doing. You know, it's just, and I think you, you know, you don't want to have that contentious relationship with your contractor, but sometimes you do. And you want to say, guys, this is your job. Get the building built. Don't tell the architect what, you know, you you do your job. And if you're delayed, it's on you, you know, so everybody needs their roles and responsibilities. And when you start sort of merging it too much is actually when you can get into a little bit of trouble. Uh, We got a question here from the audience. When you inherit a project, have you ever experienced where the project unveiled issues you weren't aware of? Uh, do you have a process where you can do quality control, where you take over, can't assume everything was designed to code or to current standards? Like that example, actually, where you inherited a project that was like 75% in. The answer is yes, right? You have to be very careful when you're inheriting a set of plans uh, or inheriting a designer. You know, what we did then was, I think we actually hired a firm to do a review of the set of drawings and just make sure that there weren't any glaring omissions or issues. You know, look, fortunately in New York, you also have a buildings department that's there to sort of review and check and approve drawings. So you have some level of comfort that somebody else's eyes have been on on them. We've only done that twice where we sort of bought a project where there was a, a pretty good set of plans developed. They actually have to be from the, the same seller both times. But, you know, we were, it's one thing if you're buying a set of drawings that is literally a thousand percent done to the T and just building what's on those plans. You know, we went in both those times and did a fair amount of changes. So, you know, while the drawings were done, you know, in both scenarios, we changed some of the floor plans, we changed some of this, some of that. Again, nothing drastic. You know, we we didn't really change any of the facade or structure or anything like that. But it is something you have to just be a little bit weary of when you're buying a project that what someone says is a, you know, approved set of plans. You have to be, you know, sort of a a buyer beware. In those early years where you were kind of just observing the shop running, What do you remember as being some of the most important insights that you started to realize about how to run a great uh, development firm? I'll repeat it as just, you have to be decisive. 
you can't sort of spin in circles. It again, it's hard enough to get a project built, you know, of scale in New York City. If you start delaying your own project just because you can't make decisions, it's really going to hurt you. And look, you're you're not going to make every every decision is not going to be a right decision. But you know, not making any decision at all is worse than making the wrong decision. Often, when you're you know in the midst of construction or design, we talked a little bit about like how you know you like to rely on sometimes architects that have done it before or have some experience in a certain asset class. When you're entering new asset classes, what changes within the company are you? Is it that your team already has maybe internal experience doing new asset classes, or are you? Is it more through partnerships that you're trying to learn quickly? about what a new asset class might take to build. We haven't kind of gone out of our box yet, right? You know, we, you know, there's really no major difference between building a condo or a, a rental building. Those are, you know, the same, you know, office buildings. We, you know, had enough experience in that we were familiar with it. And even those aren't actually that different than a rental or a condo either. You're just not building out the interiors. You know, hotels can be tricky and you really have to have your hand around it because it's the concept of like, as difficult as it is to just build a condo or rental building, imagine having to furnish that entire building and starting an operating business at the same time. You know, we took some lumps. Again, neither project got built, but in 08, you know, we had two projects that were hotel projects that were in pre-development and, and just about ready to break ground. We, in both those projects, partnered with other developers who had developed hotels. And... I think we would have been foolish to just say we could have done it on our own and figured it out because it's not possible in the same manner that now, you know, everyone's starting to look at things like industrial and last mile warehouses and all that stuff. And I couldn't tell you how to develop one of those, you know, for a million dollars, but I'm sure there's some point going to be opportunity for us to step into one of those deals. And the first thing we'll do is find someone that's done it and say, Hey, you know, we got this deal. You want to come do it with us and sort of learn as we go. You know, that's the same with even moving into new territories. We started to look at some projects in Miami and, uh, you know, again, it's a little, it's a very different process there, right? Different market, different construction, different financing, you know, different everything. So, you know, you don't ever want to say just, I'll figure it out. You know, don't worry, I'll figure it out. That's, that's just a good way to get yourself in trouble. So, you know, there's nothing wrong with lying on people that have done it before. You're talking with other potential partners like that. Like, what is that interview process like? as you're trying to gauge, like, is this going to be a good working relationship? Yeah, you know, look, I'd say it's probably less an, an interview process, more a, the real estate development world, you know, whether it's in New York or Miami, it's not that big, right? There's a, a cross-section of developers where we know each other or we have people that know each other. You know, the couple of projects that we've looked at in Miami, I've looked at with, you know, good friends who are doing other projects in Miami. And, you know, it's a little bit of a leap of faith. We haven't partnered before, but, you know, you can usually tell when you're just talking through a project, whether you're looking at it the same way and whether you think about the development in the same way. So it's, you know, those are sort of partnerships that you try and, um, again, just find other developers who are, you know, in just in the same headspace that you are and looking at things in the same manner and trying to get the same thing out of a project. You know, the, the partnership that we've had for the last decade, which like I said, three developers that kind of all kind of came together. One is a family member who, you know, my father has known for 65 years. So that was sort of natural. The other one, you know, as a group out of New Jersey that we literally just took a leap of faith on with after 2008, the first site that we found, we had met them through another partner and, had lunch and everyone seemed to like each other. And we said, Hey, we're going to do this thing. You want to do it with us? And we're now 
you know, almost 15 years later and probably 15 projects later. And we've, you know, had a very successful, good partnership. And I don't think that always happens, but we've been somewhat lucky. I'm really curious about, you know, when you describe like last mile and some of these other kind of new, or just like, there's a lot of focus now on development in that asset class. And a lot of it has to do with like changes in technology that have really spurred that development on a macro level. Yeah. How do you fold that into your own development process? Those big changes with like lifestyle changes, like, you know, do you rely on, is it at the sales and marketing consulting level where they're kind of telling you like, hey, this is how things are changing. Is it a philosophy that you internally and your team has about where things are going? Because I mean, you know, how long it takes you to build a building in New York, right? Whether it's like five years, three years, whatever, things, things change pretty quickly and consumer demand and interests also change and lifestyles change. So how are you, like, who do you rely on for that, let's say that vision in the sense of where, what certain amenities need to be there in the future, not necessarily where we are today? Yeah, look, for the residential stuff, it's definitely sort of relying to a certain extent on the sales and marketing teams and having them tell you what, you know, other people are doing, what other people are planning. Again, I sort of touched a little bit on previously on like programming, right? I mean, every site in New York and every neighborhood, you know, calls for different size units with different finishes and different amenities and different whatever, right? So it's really just one kind of having your finger on the pulse of what's going on and understanding those neighborhoods and understanding the potential buyer in that neighborhood and who's going to be buying this apartment and, you know, wherever. The office projects that we're doing, you know, we kind of saw earlier on that there was a demand for these, I'll call them boutique office floor plates and class A buildings where people almost use these offices like an extension of their own home. You know, even pre-COVID, there was sort of this sort of shift to like, I want to walk to work. I live down in downtown and I want to be able to walk to my office. I don't want to get in an Uber or the subway and schlep up to Midtown. And, you know, whether it's a guy who has a hedge fund or someone that works at a creative firm, whatever it may be, you know, that was just kind of evident, you know, again, even pre-COVID that that was just a shift that people were having mentally, that they wanted something that was a little bit more boutique in scale. It's interesting when COVID hit, you know, the whole thing was everything has to be touchless, right? I don't want to touch anything. I just want to walk. I want to stand there like this and walk in and the next thing you know, be at my seat. And that kind of shifted back, not back, but, you know, I think because of just time, like that's not necessarily the most important thing. You know, people don't need to walk up to the front door of an office and have it open to them automatically. They're okay, you know, opening an office door, put on some hand sanitizer, everyone's going to be okay. We had that the elevators are all going to be touchless and that you could get up in your elevator and your phone just by sort of flashing your phone or your key fob or whatever. And look, I think those things are still appreciated. And I think if you, you know, work in a class A office where you're paying a really significant rent, they, you like that your floor is key fobbed and you can go there. One thing, it's sort of an example, like we're, our project on Bowery, the floor plates are four or 5,000 square feet, which are nice size, but they're not huge. And what we realize is that most of these are going to be pretty high end tenants again, whether they're in the financial services or family offices, and maybe once or twice a year, they need a full fledged like boardroom. So we're doing an amenity floor that has a boardroom and another sitting area and a lounge and all that stuff. So, you know, that's something that five, eight years ago you didn't need because most of those guys had more space than they know what to do with in some big office building in Midtown. But now that they want to be home or they want to just be in their office and have that office be an extension of their home, they don't need that boardroom just sitting there, you know, 364 days a year doing nothing. So, you know, these are just, like you said, sort of shifts and whether it be in marketing or just psychology, you know, it's just kind of trying to be a little bit ahead. And again, a lot of times the architects are the ones that see it coming, right? They're talking to people the most and kind of see 
what the hedge fund needs in their office and what we want to deliver as a developer. And they're sort of starting to put it together. Yeah, that's great to hear. I always think that like, you know, architects, they often have the little bit of the time and space to be able to think about the future of where things are. And that's just part of like the culture and interest that they have. But I appreciate your answer about like sales and marketing too, because I there's a, a reoccurring theme here about like how can architects also talk to other people that are part of the process for development that might have more at-bats at a specific problem. And they're able to give more insight, whether it's on a floor plan design or furniture arrangement, or even just amenity amenities that someone might provide. Now, I want to transition to a very different question. It's our last question because we're almost at time here. And it's our uh, go-to question we always love to ask at the end of these. It's to bring it back to a human level. And that is, what's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for you? And we get all sorts of answers here. Nothing is sacred. What's the nicest thing that anyone's ever done for me? <laughs> That's a very hard question. I'll probably answer it honestly. And it's, I hope it doesn't sound terrible, but my grandfather has done for me and my father's doing for my kids is that as a gift, they all pay for our education. Yeah. I think it's a, you know, it's something that we talk about in our family all the time that, you know, I have uh, eight first cousins. Our grandfather paid for all of our schooling and now my father's paying for all mine and my sister's kids schooling. I just think it's. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's a generation. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, you know, I guess it's not something that everyone's able to do, but it's something that they sort of wanted to do. So, yeah, that is very nice. Yeah. I mean, I appreciate, I mean, we get all sorts of answers and we always appreciate like, you know, an authentic response. So I really appreciate that. Hope so, <laughs> well, I said, I hope it didn't come off wrong, but not at all. I mean, that is something that I think, you know, anyone in that position would probably want to be able to do for their family. I think that's, family is incredibly important, definitely to me. So, but yeah, so I, I think with that, I mean, thank you so much. Thank you guys for, for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Chris, Scott. Thanks for the audience. Uh, this has been a really interesting conversation. I hope everyone got some interesting takeaways and insights. I sure did about the relationship between SK development and development in general in New York with other firms and just the general, the ecosystem of players that I think architects need to be more aligned to in different ways to drive better outcomes. So thanks everyone. Cheers. Okay. Thanks, well, Bye. Thank thanks a lot, Scott. Bye. Cheers. I know. Hey, it's Sylvia from Monograph. Thank you so much for joining us here. At Monograph, we're building the number one practice operations platform for small to mid-sized architecture firms. Monograph is designed for architects by architects. Over 450 practices are using Monograph today to run the business side of architecture. You can start a free trial or sign up for a demo today at monograph.com. Find out what a practice operations platform like Monograph can do for your firm. Get started at monograph.com. Talk to you soon.